Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill us all with your spirit and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, um, when I was growing up, my family observed a special time of the year, time-honored ritual, uh, affectionately known as spring cleaning. Unlike the normal week-to-week -week cleaning, which amounted to dusting and vacuuming and a quick wipe down of the bathroom things, the tub, the toilet, and the sink, um, and the general straightening up of things, spring cleaning was an all-out assault on a year's worth of filth and clutter commonly referred to as deep cleaning today. Consisted of, among other things, mopping the floors, removing the screens, cleaning the windows inside and out, removing, um, scrubbing all the tile around the tub and around the base of the toilet, um, the sinks, wiping down the Venetian blinds. That was a big job. You had to wipe the top and the bottom of each one individually, um, hanging out the fro rugs and beating them with a broom, get all the dirt out, uh, cleaning the oven, ugh, polishing the furniture, hanging out blankets and bedspreads to uh, air in the spring breeze and the sunshine. The precise date, never knew it. It was one of those things that was like an alarm that went off in my mother's head. One day we'd be sitting at the dinner table and she'd say, Saturday is spring cleaning day. We go, no. Yeah, no. We'd all kind of try to come up with excuses. Well, I have to go do this or I have a paper to write or I have whatever. No, no none of those excuses would work. Saturday was the day. Dad was home, we were home from school, and of course doing it on Sunday was not something that was even thinkable, so Saturday was it. And like it or not, we were all expected to pitch in and do our parts until it was complete, even if it took all day. <clears throat> so mom would get up that Saturday morning, she'd fix a big breakfast that was no mess, so we had less to clean up, and we were all assigned our tasks, and we all did our best to please her, to make sure that we had done our job to the best of our ability. And we had to admit at the end of the day, even no matter how much we fussed and complained, we kind of swelled up with pride when we could breathe in the scent of the fresh air and the furniture polish and the spick and span and the spring-like freshness that filled the house. As we think about the scripture lesson this morning, I'd like for us to think about Jesus cleansing the temple as a form of spring cleaning. For in cleansing the temple, Jesus purged the house of God of its corruption and disorder. He stood against the secular trappings, which had crept into the worship practices of the people in his day, in order to make the temple pure and holy once more. I'd like to take a moment to look at the story more closely, paying attention to how it speaks to us today. The story begins, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, Passover, you'll remember, 
was one of the holiest days of the Jewish faith. It celebrated the night on which God liberated the slaves in Egypt, sending the angel of death throughout the streets of Ramesses, taking the life of every firstborn male, but passing over the homes of those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It was also the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, which has become our observance of the Lord's Supper or communion. And it celebrates our freedom from the slavery to sin and death, which he paid for with his blood, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. Passover came on the 14th day of the month of Nisan in the spring of the year when travel conditions were at their best. And so tens of thousands of faithful pilgrims would flock to the temple at Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean to celebrate the Passover, making their sacrifices to God and paying their half-shekel temple tax. Now, just think about that for a minute. It's estimated that the population of Jerusalem would swell from 50,000 to 180,000 people at Passover. That's a big number of people there. Pilgrims would come from as far away as Persia, Syria, Egypt, Greece, Rome. It's a lot of hungry mouths to feed, a lot of weary travelers to put up. Plus, they're coming to the temple to make a sacrifice, so they're going to need an unblemished animal for that. They're also going to pay their temple tax. Somebody's going to have to help them exchange their currency. You get the picture? The commercial implications for Passover were enormous, perhaps comparable to Christmas in the United States. So I think it's safe to say that the merchants were making a killing off the week of Passover. But were they really doing anything wrong? You could say that by exchanging money and selling birds and animals for sacrifice, they were providing a service. People needed this. And it's true. They were providing a service. It's also true that if you look at the synoptic gospels, that means to look at them together, or they had the same view, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus accuses the merchants in those, those gospels of cheating the people. In Matthew 21, it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Perhaps there was some price gouging going on, but this is not the focus of Jesus' anger, according to John. As far as John is concerned, Jesus is upset because all of this buying and selling has intruded upon the sacred space of worship. In John's gospel, Jesus says, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. He doesn't say it's a den of thieves or a den of robbers. So trusting for the moment John's view of the situation, I think this is a pretty good example of how good intentions often get out of hand. A merchant innocently sets up a table in the corner of the temple where worshipers might stop and buy or exchange a few coins, buy an animal, and then pretty soon another one does it, and another, and another, until before you know it, the temple has turned into a market. The temple in Jesus' day had become a marketplace, a bazaar, 
It had lost its sacred character. It was well attended, and it was a beehive of activity, but there wasn't a lot of reverence and spirituality. And it wasn't necessarily because of the priests, or that the merchants were bad people, but because perhaps unintentionally they'd lost sight of the fact that it was, after all, holy ground they were standing on. So Jesus took a whip and drove out the merchants and the sheep and the cattle and brought the activities of the temple to a screeching halt. The temple leaders rightly asked, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, who said you could come in here and disrupt the temple? Jesus' answer was hardly what they expected to hear. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now we know that he wasn't talking about the literal temple at that point. He was talking about himself. This is John's way of letting us know that the focus has now shifted from the temple to Jesus, to a prophecy that of his death and resurrection. The point is, if the temple is truly the dwelling place of God, then the temple of God is no longer to be thought of as the physical structure in Jerusalem, or any structure for that matter, but the person of Jesus Christ. And what this means for us this morning is that the temple of God today is to be found in the hearts and the minds of those who honor Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, wherever they ha may happen to be. This is what Paul told the Corinthians when he said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? We are the temple of the living God in the world today, each one of us. And this is where Jesus' cleansing of the temple hits home for us. As we consider the many ways we have become lax in our spiritual disciplines and soft in our resistance to evil thoughts and destructive behaviors and accommodating the secular and often selfish values of the world in which we live. We're all prone to a little backsliding from time to time. It's not as if we go off the deep end and forsake our Christian calling altogether. It's just that we let little things slip into our everyday lives and take precedent over our commitment to Christ and his kingdom until our relationship to Jesus Christ becomes secondary or nominal at best. It's a subtle process, this turning the temple into a marketplace, like the houses we live in, a little dust and dirt build up on the baseboards and in the hard-to-reach nooks and crannies of each room. Lint balls accumulate under the bed, mildew forms in the shower stall and around the tub, coffee stains appear on the carpet or furniture, cobwebs hang from the ceiling. It all happens so slowly that we hardly notice it. Until one day, like my mom years ago, an alarm goes off and we come to our senses and we realize it's time to do some spring cleaning and put our houses back in order. When my children were younger, we sometimes watched a show on TV called The Big Comfy Couch, which featured a clown named Lunette and her doll Molly. They would solve all kinds of everyday problems on that couch and at the end of the show, Lunette would say, who made this big mess? And the uh, camera would kind of zoom in on her a little bit, and she'd say, me? Did I make this mess? 
And the camera would shake its head. And she'd say, it's time for the 10 second tidy. And they'd play this song and in 10 seconds, she would run around and hide all the stuff behind the pillows, under the cushions, all that, do her 10 second tidy, clean up the house, clean up the room, everything was good. Wouldn't it be great if it were really that easy to tidy up everything in our houses and in our lives in 10 seconds? The 10 second tidy might work for some of you, but it's going to take a lot more than 10 seconds to get me into the shape I need to be to be truly the temple of God, of my living God. Perhaps taking 10 seconds on a regular basis to pray and ask God to create a clean heart in me would be a good start. But being willing to allow Jesus to come into my heart to, with his holy scrub cloths and scrub brushes and do a deep spring cleaning, that's what I need to do. So I ask, will we allow Jesus to come and scrub away the areas of negativity in our lives? The mold of the world that tries to grow in our souls? And those little dust bunnies and cobwebs of inflated egos, wrong attitudes and lifestyles? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to clean out the closets and corners and cubby holes where we have stashed things we really don't need anymore, things we need to let go of? Will we allow him to not only clean us up, but to polish us and make us shine with his inner glow and the radiance that will cause others to ask why we have so much joy? This is what I hope you'll take home with you today. Lent is a time of introspection, a time of looking within and taking note of the various ways we've strayed from the righteousness of God. It's a time for cleansing the temple and making our lives, mind, body, and soul worthy places for the Spirit of God to dwell. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us even when our lives and our hearts are full of junk. We ask you to Help us clean them out. Come in and cleanse us so that we have clean hearts and pure souls fit for your living. So that we might be sanctuaries and temples full of your grace and your love and your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.